all got that voice in our head that tells us we can't do stuff. But some people are just better at not listening to it. And by sitting down with those people, asking them questions, and then you know, recording it and blasting it out on the internet, perhaps, maybe, I can help other people like me get out of our own way. Hey guys, welcome back to Closure Optional. My guest this week is Professor Leon Petrovsky, PhD. He is the director of the Pinager Clinic. Uh, it's a psychotherapy clinic uh, in Rabina. And then he is also an associate professor of psychiatry at the University of Queensland. And he's a f- fucking mad, has lived a very cool life. If it sounds like that's a lot of stuff to accomplish in a life, then yeah, you're right. But that's because he's had 76 years of life so far. And this was such a fun conversation. He's like the coolest granddad that you'll ever meet. Well, my kind of coolest granddad, anyway. He's a, he specializes, he's doing research right now specializing in developmental neuroscience and what can go wrong in the first three years specifically of a child's life. That includes also the nine-month period that they spend in the womb. This was, hey, this was such a fun conversation. It was like, um, if you imagine getting a nice warm cup of tea and sitting down with a bake of freshly bake a plate of freshly baked goods at your grandparents' house and sitting down in the lounge with your granddad where he told you crazy fun stories about the wacky life that he's lived. It was so fun. I went and actually went to his house to record this podcast. So we were sitting outside in his lovely big massive garden area so every once in a while forgive me there is uh, an airplane or a truck driving by that you can kind of hear in the background and um you you have to forgive the guy he's 76 years old every once in a while while he's talking he's holding a microphone in his hands but he's moving his hands around and so you can kind of hear sometimes the noise of the microphone or um his voice kind of disappears every once in a while so i'm sorry i feel like I've done the best that I could do with the audio, but if you are really struggling to hear it and it's distracting, please send me a message so that I can um, have a look back over it and try and fix it. And yeah, so that's it. Anyways, this conversation is fucking awesome. We talk about what goes wrong in those first three years of life, uh, how to mitigate those things from going wrong. What, uh, what they, when things go wrong there, he calls it developmental trauma. And basically that means obviously while the fetus is developing, they develop, they experience trauma. And uh, while the child is developing and their brain's developing, they experience trauma and that causes long-term effects, uh, mental health issues, physical behavioral issues, physical issues, all that stuff uh, going into the future. And then obviously what is frightening about that is that then that child grows up to have kids of their own and they can pass a lot of that trauma down through genetics, not only just psychologically um, by the way that they treat their children, but also it's ingrained in their genetics. It's fucking crazy. So this is a cyclic problem and he's noticed it uh, very strongly, consistently in a lot of his work with remote communities in indigenous Australia. And so he, that's a lot of where his research has been focused lately. So he, we discuss uh, some personal remedies that you can do or personal things that you can do to help deal with uh, developmental trauma if that's something that you've experienced or have. Also, the differences between developmental trauma or general mental health issues that are caused by genetics, which are a different story and need different treatments and different assessments. And also some of the social possible social remedies that we could put into place that might stop this from perpetuating and maybe help us grow and develop as a species better. And then lastly, he also talks a bit about some of his crazy experiences with psychedelics as a young researcher of psychiatry and uh, the amount of times that he lost his ego to the black hole of a psychedelic abyss. (laughs) It was so fun talking to this guy. I really, really enjoyed it. So I hope you guys get to enjoy this also. Um, if you like this podcast or any of the other podcasts I do, please do support the page. You can uh, go to Facebook, uh, support the page. What does that even mean? Support my pages. It's Lorna Bremner on Facebook or it is Lorna underscore Bremner on Instagram. You can uh, subscribe to the podcast, Closure Optional, anywhere you get good podcasts, Spotify, iTunes, rate it, whatever, share it with a friend. Also, if you would like to help support the podcast, you can do that at patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N. 
patreon.com slash Lorna Bremner for five bucks a month, which is less than a cup of coffee, especially if you get coconut milk, which is what I do. And uh, yeah, you can show me you appreciate what I'm trying to do and help me live my dream, live my best life. Thank you. As always, so much for listening. Thank you to the current patrons of this podcast, sponsors of this podcast. Fucking love you guys. Couldn't do it without you. And please do enjoy this conversation with the grandfather I wish I had. It's always so funny to do that because we always have been talking to each other for ages before I start the podcast, so it's always such an awkward yeah, thing. Yeah. How are you? Um, alive. <laughs> <laughs> You're alive. That's important. That's a necessary. Well, hell, I'm looking out at my age, for God's sake. I'm 76. You're 76 years old. I know I don't look 76, <laughs> but I am actually 76, and so I could be around on this planet for another 30 years. Or another 30 days, or another 30 hours. <laughs> Anything past this point is just great. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, and I, I live in paradise. You do? This place yeah. is amazing, man. This is it such is a beautiful place. It is just so spot. gorgeous. I mean, we are so spoiled. When we go to seven-star resorts, we kind of look around and we think, oh, this has got nothing on our place. Yeah, this feels like my yeah. home. Uh, and it's so good, you know. We've got lovely family Wonderful wife, great mm. kids, great grandkids. I mean, we are just so bloody fortunate. You feel like you've done we well in for this your 76 years. Gorgeous country. Mm. Yeah, 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 man. Yeah, so good. And um, so your whole background, you're a professor yeah. in psychology, or you were, yeah, and now yeah, you're writing yeah. books. Um, all of that. I'm mainly in private practice currently, mm. and... Uh, I love it. And you, do you specialize in anything in particular with your clients? Or? Um, well, it's psychotherapy. You know, I've had a hell of a lot of psychotherapy myself. Shitloads. <laughs> You're I've one of us shitloads of people. <laughs> meditation. I'm uh, a past president of the Australian Jungian Analysts mm. um, Society. I trained as a psychodrama director, and psychodrama is just gorgeous. What psychodrama. Is that? Psychodrama? Yeah, what is that? Well, it's this wonderful thing where you get a group of people, right? And uh, um, someone will come up and want to look at a problem, yeah? Or whatever is bugging them. And then you can bring people up from the group onto the stage to act out various parts. Ah, I've read about this. Well, yeah. I think I've read about a similar yeah. concept called transactional analysis from Dr. It's a bit, it's a bit like transactional analysis. Yeah, okay. But psychodrama, in my view, is actually the most powerful of all the therapies. Wow. But it's got big problems. Yeah, why is that? Well, one of them is it tends to be hit and run. Yeah. Like, you know, you get a bloody psychodrama workshop for seven days and people have a wonderful time. And some of them get a lot of healing. But the majority of them need kind of ongoing therapy mm -hmm. for another few months or another few years or whatever. Yeah, because I imagine because it Because it's stir a hit up. and run, yeah, you don't yeah. get it. And the other big problem with psychodrama is... Um, what the director is like. Okay. Because if you've got someone who's somehow or other got their psychodrama qualifications, but they're a bit of a narcissist or a bit of a psychopath, they just cause trouble wherever they go. So it's, yeah, do you know what was interesting? I had a, um, I used to go to hypnotherapy yeah. sessions I went originally to deal with the fear of flying, and then yeah. I kind of really enjoyed yeah. the amount of uh, ah, just really cool conversations I was having with this lady. She was amazing in Perth, and she was actually a practitioner of ND Buddhism, Nichiren oh, yeah. Dashana yeah, Buddhism, yeah, yeah. so oh, she chanted. Um, it was beautiful. She was an older lady. She could have been my grandma. She was so lovely. And then, um, so when I moved back over to the Gold Coast, I 
enjoyed that and I wanted to go and have another session with someone. But this person, when I went to it, it was the same format, same thing. But it felt like she was suggesting mm. psychological issues yeah, that yeah, I yeah. hadn't come to yeah. myself, you know, yeah, and I was kind of yeah. like, I felt sicker after yeah, I left. Afterwards, yeah. <laughs> it yeah. was awful. Yeah, well, that happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you got to have a good practitioner. Mm. Yeah. And of course, the third thing with psychodrama that really stuffs me up is the logistics. Mm, okay. Organising workshops. Organising yeah. bloody workshops and then, you know, getting refunds through Medicare and stuff. It is such a bloody nightmare that these days um, I use elements of psychodrama in my practice but I don't, don't do workshops any. Yeah. What does the overall psychological community feel about psychodrama? Oh, I think they hate it. If they know anything about it, yeah, or if they okay. imagine they know anything about it, yeah, yeah, because it just sounds like it's one of those things that like could possibly be in the wrong hands, be you know just a money grab. Thing. Oh yeah, well that's that, and then look, you know, uh, unless you've actually been to a good quality workshop, you don't really know what it's about. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so yeah. you were saying that you think it's one of the most powerful mm-hmm. things for healing. Why do you think that is? Oh, because it's just so so radical. It involves everything. Mm. It involves your feelings. It involves your thoughts. It involves your relationships with people. It involves your attachment dynamics. I actually did run a psychodrama workshop here about four years ago. And as my uh, co-worker, I had Max Clayton, who's, who was one of the top psychodrama practitioners on the planet. Mm. And he was my principal mentor. Um, unfortunately, he's dead now. He, he died about two and a half years ago of pancreatic cancer. But a beautiful man. Mm. Like, you know, we could do stuff like regressing people to pre-verbal kind of baby age where they're kind of rolling around on the floor and then you kind of get them to reverse roles with whoever's supposed to be looking after them and stuff. You can look at those very early interactions. Powerful. Yeah, wow. And and so being able to watch what somebody was like as a child kind of helps you see the patterns that are forming in their adulthood. Big time. And then when they act them out, are they consciously aware while they're acting them out that this is something that they do or what the link is or is that required later to, like, Um, discuss in psychotherapy? Bit of both. Yeah, okay. Yeah, bit of both. Yeah, because it's hard to see how your own behaviour patterns play out from your own perspective. It's It's very, very hard, especially the behaviour patterns in those first three years of life before the left hemisphere, that's the yap, 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 the Mm -hmm. talking, um, you know, rational logic Mm. stuff, which is very important, but, you know, has its own place. And so before that develops, it's your right hemisphere that's doing all the stuff. But what's happening in the right hemisphere? Sense of self. Mm. Um, Your arousal level. Are you in danger? Your uh, attachment dynamics, how you relate Mm -hmm. to other people. So there's all of that stuff which, you know, over the last 20 years or so, um, there's been a revolution in developmental neuroscience in our understanding of what goes on in the brain in those first three years of life. First three years of life include the intrauterine period. Wow, okay. Because shitloads goes on in there as mm. well. So you were saying in your writing that you think that this is, if um, the thing that you related it to was called uh, climate change, you said if climate change is the biggest pressing problem for us culturally uh, in the current age, Psychologically, our biggest problem... Psychologically, sociologically, our biggest problem is um, developmental trauma because there's just such a lot of it. There's such a lot of it. And a lot of it has to do with the mothers who were vulnerable or at risk not being recognised, not being supported, not being cared for, not being given what they need in order to get on with uh, the baby. Right. And so 
Because they're in such a fucked state, um, we can use these words on podcasts. Yes, of course, yes. by all means, my um, <laughs> The baby actually downloads the mother's fucked right brain programs. Wow. And because they're subverbal, when the baby grows up, the baby's not aware, like, you know, mm. logically yeah, of that. Unable to put any words to it, but it drives that person's behaviour. Wow, okay. Big time. And this is really, really, really critical. The majority of people, you know, most of the public, um, are not aware of some of the fundamental principles of the scientific method. And one of the core principles is what we call uh, probabilities. And so a lot, of, a lot of science research is based on probabilities. Now, what this means is that even if you or I had had a really good upbringing, lovely parents, a beautiful community to live in, all the rest of it, one in a thousand of us could still turn out to be assholes. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Now, just because that happens, you see, people who aren't into probabilities just dismiss it and they say, oh, see, you give them good upbringing and they still turn out to be assholes. All oh, right, I see, yeah, yeah. But the point is only one in a thousand right. turn out to be assholes. Whereas the other way round, if you've had a shit upbringing, there will still be one in a hundred or one in a thousand who will actually somehow make a bloody good go mm. of their lives. Yeah. Mm. But the other 99 will be fucked. <laughs> yeah. And again, you know, this is what the non-scientific public just doesn't get. So what I'm saying is that if we can begin to introduce big-time public awareness of just how important it is to look after the early nurturing processes and the people that do it, um, that is not going to ensure that everybody is going to be great. But it is going to ensure that a significant proportion of them will. Right, OK. And that gets us to the next point. Once there's a significant proportion of humans on this planet who have actually had a good start, then we can reach what we might call a kind of critical mass yeah. uh, of human beings, where there'll actually be enough human beings who are not so fucked that you know, you're going to have bloody terrorists all the time with drugs and crime and shit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And environmental destruction, too. I mean, I think that's... Uh, big time. Big it's time. such an yeah. amazing thing, like, that we are so short-sighted that they we can't so see connected. that that's going to be a problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Huh. So um, when you talk about development, I mean, even if we could just go back to the very start. So when you said in the womb, what are some of the things that can go wrong with a well, mother? Right. Well, we, we could talk about yeah, this for three well, days. <laughs> right about six months in the womb the baby's amygdala, but in particular the right hemispheric amygdala, which is kind of the sort of awareness and arousal centre, comes online. And if the mother is feeling highly stressed all the time, the baby picks that up. And not only does the baby pick that up, but that actually lays down their own brain programs. So as they grow on, they'll be more hypervigilant than the average. Mm. So they'll freak out over things that are not going to freak the average person out. Right. Yeah, okay. And this in turn you know, generates a whole lot of problems. So it's essentially priming the baby to believe that the world is a dangerous and threatening place. Yeah, in a non-verbal way. Yeah. Yes, yes. Wow. So there's that. I read a book a, a while ago. I don't know how, I don't know where it stands with the current research, but it was called um, The Biology of Belief is what it's called right. by Bruce Lipton. Bruce Lipton. Haven't read it. Haven't Sorry. Read it. It, it's, it's a study, it's a book about the concept of epigenetics. And yeah, the yeah, idea yeah, yeah, yeah. was that uh, one of the things that he pointed out was that babies that were developing inside a womb where uh, in a very high stress environment, 
that the baby tended to develop longer limbs because mm -hmm. the physiological response yeah, to yeah. stress is yeah. to send blood out to it the limbs. to send blood out to the limbs, yep. That, that, that makes sense. I'd go along with that. I oh, mean, wow. Look, you know, I only mentioned just one of the main effects of yeah. problems in the womb. But, uh, um, yeah, epigenetics is another big one because even if you're born with the right kind of genes, a variety of stressors can actually impact on how the genes get expressed. Wow. And some of them get methylated. They kind of get methyl groups tacked onto them, which means that they no longer function properly. Oh, wow. Yeah. And that is caused by hormones in the bloodstream? Or? That's caused by a whole lot of things, yeah. Yeah, OK. There's, there's a whole lot of work that's been uh, done on that for years and years by a Canadian guy called Meany, M-E-A-N-E-Y, <laughs> beautiful name, but a very, very, very famous researcher Okay, who's so, done all the work on epigenetics. Yeah. So you, and, and epigenetics are environmental changes causing, or environmental impact. Yeah, environmental impact on your genetic profile. Yeah. Which is so cool. And it doesn't end there. Right. Because if your genes get modified, you pass them on to the next generation. Isn't that so crazy? So which is horrific. It's horrific. Yeah. So you that could is, have yeah. A so stressed... you get this transgenerational shit. Wow, you're you were inside your mother's womb while she was stressed. That caused epigenetic changes in your in DNA. Yourself, yeah. Then you, you have had a children, and they, or they've already then inherited the modified. Wow. form of the gene. Yeah. So even if you're not stressed, they're still going to carry on as if... Yeah. yeah. God, that's scary, huh? It is scary. It is scary. And that's what we're seeing. That's what I keep seeing again and again and again in the Aboriginal communities that I visit. Yeah, so you were just working out there. What were you doing out... Uh, where were you? Well, I visit what's called the Lurichalip in... Uh, Central Western Australia communities like Papania, Hasbluff, Liebig, um, Ikunji, Kintor. Kintor is very near the West Australian border. So we do this huge trip and we do it by four wheel drive because we'd have to hire a full time pilot mm. to fly us every day. But uh, yeah, well, look, you know, I've been doing that for many, many, many years. And over the years, I've actually learned to speak the languages. There's a group of what are called Western Desert languages, Pitantajara, Lorija, Pinabi, Nganajara, Yankarajara. And they're all very, very similar. If you can speak one, mm. you can be understood in any of the others. So and that's been a great thing. The other thing which is really, really good, is very early on in the piece, we had some fabulous Indigenous mentors. Mm, mm. Yeah, that's like, you know, Medicine men, and, yeah. uh, um, tribal elders, who took us under our wing. And the reason they took us under our wing was because of our dreams, for God's sake. We produced the right kind of dreams for wow. them. And they said, all right, okay, yeah, we'll take you on. What do you mean by that? They look for certain characteristics in the dreams. That, well, they ask you first of all. They get today, yeah, and then they say, oh, look, you know, tell me about the dreams that you've had. And, of course, the guy who worked closely with me was a friend and colleague of mine who's also a Jungian analyst. And that was uh, Dr. Craig Sanrock. He's a psychologist. He's a marvellous being. You know, and the two of us worked with these indigenous healers. And they would take us out bush to show us the sacred sites, to teach us about indigenous healing. I mean, you know, just incredible privilege. Mm. We were so, so lucky mm. to have that. And uh, in the book that I'm writing, I, uh, I describe this interesting experience that I had with them when we were out bush at one of the sacred sites. The big medicine story 
in Australia is the healing snake story, which starts on the East Coast, for God's sake, and travels all the way through Central Australia to the West Coast. Everywhere along the way, there are groups of traditional healers who both know the long story, but also the, the particular bits that belong to their territory. Mm. And so we were at a place near Ewandamu, uh, which is north of uh, Alice Springs, where uh, one of the medicine snakes, after having had a fight with his wife, <laughs> begins the long journey to the west. And so we slept under the stars. And in the morning, of course, they asked us, what did you dream about? And I said, what I dreamt about was this huge, wonderful guy who was walking through the landscape. And his job was to look after the nurturers. So he was looking after all the mums, not just the human mums, but you know, the animal mums, helping them be good nurturers. And not only was he doing his stuff in Australia, but he was going around the whole world. Like so, a Santa Claus of healing. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and so my, my dear mentor said, oh, lovely, you know, what you've dreamt of is this guy that we talk, that we call... Wadi Kanyalpai. Wadi means initiated man, ancestor. Kanyal means looking after and pai means continuously. Mm. So this is the guy who continuously looks after. Mm. That's his job on the planet. Of course, you know, that that, that kind of got me. uh, I started thinking, well, gee, you know, we'd better get on board with Wadi Kanyalpai and uh, yeah, try and, uh, yeah. Well, yep. th- it, it, that's, and it's because it's such a crucial part, obviously, as you've been finding in your research, that this, this nurturance yeah, yeah, yeah. is so critically important yeah, for yeah. every single life for decision every that single, happens after. Absolutely. Yeah. Because human beings, I think it's easy for us sometimes to be like, it's them, it's the system, it's the problem with the hierarchy, it's the problem with capitalism, it's the problem with well, the government, the, the, whatever. There's all of that. But Those are all made of people. we can yeah. bring something of ourselves to it, and then we're always going to be in this kind of victim mentality right. where, uh, and powerless, basically. And so, yeah, resolving the human problem at, at its core, at its starting base, then, yeah, we have a better chance of kind of turning the, things around. And what are you finding is consistent in the indigenous communities out there that you're working with, that you're trying to sort of Well, let's start with a little history lesson. Okay. 200 years ago, before the invasion, when the cultures were still intact, there was this wonderful kinship system where, for instance, my daughter... I'm not, not, yeah, and we, we were given... Uh, skin names and we were given medicine names. My skin name is Jungarai. I'm a Jungarai. The tribe was divided into what are called moieties. There's usually about eight moieties in every tribe. And so if I'm a Jungarai, then my daughter will fall into the Napaljari mm-hmm. moiety, or skin name, if you like. Her mother, who is my wife, will be a Nangala. So Nangala is the mother of Napaljari, right? Now, here is the punchline. Even though Nangala is the biological mother of Napaljari, there's a whole bunch of other Nangalas in the tribe. And tribal custom prescribes that they are all mm-hmm. her mothers, Mm. So, so each can child you is imagine by the tribe. what that's like? So, and so yeah. when my daughter has a child, there's not only her mother who will be looking after her, there will be all the other mothers mm. and there'll be a whole bunch of other people who are all there mm. 
and say back in those days there would have been relatively little um, child neglect mm. because you know even if you were sick there'd always be someone who'd kind of come in and help mm. okay now you know we kick forward 150 years and, uh, um, you know we got all the bloody contact with white civilization in uh, inverted commas and that system begins to break down and it continues breaking down. And so these days the kinship system isn't nearly as strong and so that begins to create some big-time problems. And that all of the responsibility is on one parent... As on one parent, exactly. ...to look after and raise yeah. a human being. And now, if you add on top of that all the other shit that we've brought mm. to the Indigenous communities, dispossession, removal from bloody land, alcohol, violence, drugs, exploitation, and add that to the dysfunctional kinship system, you have got a nightmare. Yeah, man. Well, because this is so interesting, like, uh, from especially from the white explorer perspective, the imperialist um, perspective, it's like, home's boring. Yeah, I'll go back there when I'm done, but I want to go explore shit, and no, then no. That, I'm going to make that thing mine. Whereas the indigenous sort of mentality is home is in the land. Home is in the land. It's where I come from. Like Absolutely, which is the other big thing. So that when we get we go, surely this bit of dirt is the same as that bit of dirt. It's at not at eight. At eight. At eight. Yeah. Now we know that from the uh, biological research that, like, you know, fish on the coral reef, for instance, have their domain. You take them out of their domain, and they die. Wow. Yeah. People forget just how important our connection with the domain. Is mm. to our mental well-being. Um, I mean, you know, my wonderful colleague, psychoanalysts, uh, are all into. Oh well, you know, it's the connection with the mother, and it's the connection with the father that's important. If that gets broken down, then there's trouble. Mm. But what they always leave out is connection with the domain. Right. Yeah. And that's very important. Yeah, I mean, and I feel like this is a pretty, a purely, well, I don't know if it's purely, but it's a very Western way of looking at things. That, um, and, and I think with the way that, to, for, I guess, to be the devil's advocate here for argument's sake, yeah. the direction that we're moving with connectivity on the internet and kind of operating more as a global species than we are as individual home people. Because there is some argument that, you know, having a nationalist and patriotic point of view is also ridiculous. And I, I well, of course it is. I think I think uh, attaching to a nation state is a silly idea. And me, obviously, I'm an immigrant myself, so I find I I get very confused about this. Like, is that one of the reasons why I feel disconnected and lost and lonely a lot of the time that I'm missing from where I come from? But also, when I was growing up, I never felt like I belonged where I came from. I felt much well, more at home tells, here. Well, that tells both of us something about your very early history. Ah, okay. See? My and there'll be, yeah, there'll be a whole lot of stuff. Because my yeah. parents were immigrants as well. My, my mother was from America, but my dad's Scottish, so his family was immigrants. So I wonder if that's one of those things that kind well, of becomes Well, that could well be huh. one of the factors, yeah. But so it's an interesting thing, like having this kind of like broken disconnection and then how you replace those connections to in order to develop a, selfie, a healthy psyche or a healthy... It ain't easy. It ain't easy. But then, of course, look, the, the other thing about early development is that sometimes you can have very good mothers mm. who are just bloody unfortunate. Right. They get postpartum depression. And the poor thing is so depressed that she struggles to establish a bond with the baby. Mm. And so, you know, guess what happens to the baby? The baby develops all those kind of uh, failed attachment, neglect networks and programs, even though the mother is basically a very good mother. Mm. Which is why, you know, I keep saying, God, it's so important to kind of recognise these things early, come in with a lot of help. 
So in your opinion, what are some of the tangible things that we can do as a society now that, that you would like to see put into place? Well, we've actually got some very good examples oh, cool. of what can be done. Now, there's a wonderful group of indigenous people who live out in Western Victoria in the Mallee called Bumps to Babes and Beyond. And this is worth looking up on the net. Okay. They are so bloody amazing. They're indigenous. So they're well connected with their culture, with language, with the, the domain. But they're also up to bloody speed with developmental neuropsychology. Mm. And so they've been to Melbourne University. They've uh, uh, been to international workshops and developmental psychology. And so they know what all of that stuff is about. Yeah, okay. okay. So this then allows them to begin constructing a program where in their community they can identify the vulnerable mothers, but they can do so in a way that doesn't shame the mothers. Right. So the mothers are more open to... What's an example of a vulnerable mother? Well, a single mum or a mum subject to a lot of domestic violence um, or a mum who comes from a very difficult background herself and, you know, has got lots of psychological and emotional problems because of that. Mm, drug addiction. Whatever, yeah. 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 We'll, we'll, we'll get on to that further down the track. We'll, we'll talk about some of the consequences mm. of a uh, difficult early childhood. So what these guys do, because they're culturally well-connected, they pick up mums at risk, they begin offering them support in a non-threatening, non-shaming way. They look at practical stuff as well, you know, mm. negotiating with uh, Santa Link, getting money for cradles and cribs. Yeah, yeah, wow. Baby food and all of that stuff. Oh, that's amazing! So these, this is an, a group that's already in operation. That some. This is a group that's been in operation for about six years now, wow. and they've recently published their first two-year survey, and the results are just so good. You know. They're, oh wow! They're what we want to see, because the kids who are turning up are doing very well. Awesome. Okay. Yes. Wow. Which gets us on to the next bit. But yeah. before we do that, I mean, you know, that is a good example. And what we need is to have organisations like that right across Australia. This isn't just an Aboriginal problem, for right. God's sake. You know. Right. This is a big, big problem in the larger community. Right. Yeah. And, you know, Absolutely. there are so many women who. Uh, um, the victims of domestic violence or who have come from troubled backgrounds themselves. And one of the problems with coming from a very dysfunctional background is that um, that will motivate the woman very strongly, not all the time, but often, you know, 90% of the time, to get pregnant and have a baby. Mm. Why? Because she's got this kind of intuition that if she can be good with the baby, she'll get some vicarious healing. Right, yes. Yeah, and that's true. That is what happens, but only if you get lots of caring while you're doing it. Mm. And so if you do it successfully, you get vicarious healing. Okay. If you don't, you fuck yourself up even more and, and the poor baby, exactly. Yeah, wow. And so that then gets us on to... Um, the various kinds of fuck-ups that occur. Yeah, okay. what can they so, be like? So, hypervigilance as mm. one of them. So, you're more sensitive than the average. You respond in a more distressed way to things that normally people could shake off. You know, it's, oh, yeah, well, she didn't like that, but, hey, life goes on. Mm. Your attention and concentration are stuffed, so you're going to have trouble at school. Your impulse control is stuffed, so you're going to have a lot of troubles with behaviour. 
You're going to be fearful. You're going to be violent, bashing other bloody kids up. Um, when you grow up, especially in an Aboriginal community, you end up in jail. Mm. So there's that. There's all that stuff about um, vulnerability to uh, um, drugs, substances, alcohol. Um, why is that? That's because you feel miserable more often than the average person. So you discover that if you... Um, eat substances or inject substances, and that makes you feel a little bit better for a while. Mm. And on the psychological side, it also makes you much more prone to getting a whole range of mental illnesses. So you're about f four times as likely to get schizophrenia. Mm. Yeah, you know, anything up to ten times as likely to get depression or anxiety disorder. You're much more likely to get PTSD. When you look at the statistics with the American veterans, for instance, what you find is that the personnel who had a documented history of early childhood abuse or neglect are the ones who are much more likely to get PTSD than the ones who didn't. And that's just the psychological stuff. Mm. Then there's the physical stuff. We talked about epigenetics already. You know, your genes get stuffed up. There's a thing called the HPA axis, hypophyseal pituitary adrenal axis, which is like a core hormone control system. That gets stuffed up. So you begin producing too much cortisone, you begin producing too much adrenaline at inappropriate times. That makes you much more prone to diabetes, obesity, hypertension, heart problems, renal problems. Oh, my God. And so guess what we see in Indigenous communities? Yeah. An over-representation of people with kidney problems, heart problems, diabetes, obesity, or mm -hmm. all the stuff. Where does most of it come from? Wow. That's where it comes from. And it's it's coming from the first three years. Those first three life. years, yeah. yeah I mean, you know, first three is not the only thing. I mean, there are right, some yeah. people who, um, you know, have a reasonable three, four, five years of life and then later on gets severely abused. And so how does a person start to mitigate this? Not only, I mean, obviously, as we've already discussed, like implementing programs to start before you even, but if you are one of these people that's developed this, was kind of had a rough start, how do we go about fixing that? Okay. Well, that's where it becomes much more difficult because um, conventional psychotherapy only helps... Up to a point. And I'm, uh, you know, besides, it's very expensive to yeah, continually go, yeah. produce. I mean, you know, if we were going to have psychotherapists and play therapists for the kids of Papania, for instance, you'd need to employ well, about 10 of them for the next six years. Yeah, wow. Now, you know, there's not going to be any money. Right. to come from that. What, what gets done instead is we get play therapists who come out and do groups once every six months. And that's good stuff. It does help, but it's not nearly enough. Mm. So there's all of this stuff. However, um, what we know now, and there's a lot of research on is that there's a thing called neurofeedback which helps the damaged kids. And what you do is you plug them into these little computer programs which give them rewards on the screen if the brain is producing the right kind of brain waves. And so what you're, what you're tailoring is if they can produce brain waves that calm the amygdala, then they get a reward on the screen. Mm. But if you do about 30 sessions of that in a year, the amygdala begin to change. Wow. Yeah. The brain 
the brain's ability to change itself is so incredible. That's the one. Wow. That's the one. So and this, it's, a th it's like a visualization of what a meditation would be doing for your brain, I suppose, huh? Um, like targeted focus. Yeah, 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 yeah. To some extent, to some extent, huh. except that, uh, uh, I mean, meditation is helpful, but... It's hard to describe that sensation to a mm, six-year-old, yeah, I imagine. Yeah. The difficulty is, by the time people get to meditation, it's usually a bit late on in the piece. Right, yeah. And so they will get some relief, but not the full relief that they would. The name to mention here, of course, is Seaburn Fisher. Okay. F-I-S-H-E-R. Read her book, for God's sake. Seaborn Fisher. Seaburn. Seaburn, okay. Yeah. You know, she looks at... Um, ways that she's worked with kids and adults using neurofeedback. And this is with people who have suffered neglect, physical abuse, sexual abuse, emotional abuse, all of that stuff. And she combines that with psychotherapy. It's no good just doing that neurofeedback alone. Yeah. You need the psychotherapy in there. And she gets some fantastic results. What does, um, how does the, when they're doing these tests, this neurofeedback test, how does the kid um, get their amygdala, amygdala to be in a calm state? So, like, what kind of we, stuff do we, they... We, we, we don't know. They, you imagine... We don't know. They, they, nice they just sit in front of the computer and... Um, Oh, you know, a beautiful flower comes up if they've hit the right spot, you see. Ah, okay. And so, so they, they keep bringing the beautiful flower up. And the more they do that, the more the brain fires in that particular helpful healing pattern. Okay. And so if you do that often enough, eventually the brain changes. So the opposite of that would be like if you continually are watching like horror films that are frightening uh, you or listening exactly. to loud, intense yeah, 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 music yeah, yeah, that yeah, 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 gives you yeah, adrenaline or you yeah, live in a yeah. stressful All of that. Well, of course, you know, a lot of the developmentally distressed kids will do that. You know. uh, look, uh, and that gets us onto a whole other thing which has to do with what we call the default mode network, which is a set of uh, things, mainly in the middle of the brain, which manage your sense of self. Mm -hmm. You can't have a sense of self without having a sense of other or a sense of other without having a sense of self. And if your default mode network isn't functioning properly, then you're forever confusing everything with everything. And you don't know whether it's you or somebody else that's done bloody mm. stuff or doesn't feel like it. You go into dissociation states... Okay, so this would be a person that sort of, um, like if we're, a normal deviation of this would be somebody who just puts way too much emphasis on what other people think of them. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, that would be a good example. And how do you rectify that? Well, again, you know, it's hard work. Yeah. Neurofeedback, psychotherapy. Yeah, yeah. okay. And have you heard much about the um, MDMA-assisted psychotherapy trials that they're doing in the U.S. at the moment? Um, I actually prefer ketamine. Yeah, I, I've uh, had I've because experienced that. It's very, very ketamine. similar. Yeah. To MDMA, but there's a hell of a lot more research that's been done to it. Okay. When I was in Adelaide a couple of weeks ago, at one of the international workshops, this was run by a guy called Martin Teicher, T-E-I-C-H-E-R, who's big time. American developmental neuropsychology guru. Mm. And what I didn't know was that Martin's actually done a hell of a lot of work with ketamine. Wow. And so he taught me shitloads of stuff in that long weekend. All I've understood about ketamine so far is that they have been finding it's useful in emergency cases where somebody is like immediately suicidal. They can give them... It, it works very quickly. Intramuscular ke you, you, ketamine. You, yeah, you, 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 you can tell whether it's going to work okay. within 25 minutes. Wow. If it works, then you know that the next time you give it to them, it's also going to work. Right, okay. Plus, the other thing that Martin told me is that ketamine only works 
not with depression actually, but with the depressive symptoms and the anxiety symptoms that you get if you have developmental trauma. Oh, wow. If you don't have developmental trauma... It doesn't do anything. Ketamine doesn't work. Wow, so it's something to do with... Right, and then it works the other way around. If... Wow. If you have genetic depression, you know, you had a really nice upbringing, but you still had a lot of bad genes for depression. Antidepressants work well. Mm. If you've got developmental trauma depression, antidepressants suck. Wow. They just do not work. So this is another thing that we're discovering. What he was doing is he was using ketamine with kids, developmentally traumatised kids, and getting fabulous results. But in America, the FDA has approved a thing called S-ketamine, which is an isomer of ketamine, which you can put up in sniffers. Oh, yep, okay. Yeah. Now, that will be available in Australia over the next 12 to 24 months. Then... Um, you know, I could imagine myself going out bush for a few weeks with some sniffers, yeah. doing some sniffing with the damaged kids, doing neurofeedback, doing psychotherapy, doing play therapy. So what kind of therapy goes alongside with the ketamine? Because it's obviously, it's not just like using an antidepressant. It's not like you just give them ketamine no, no, and no, let no, them no, go. No, 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 no. Uh, how does ag- it work? Again, you know, my view is it should be combined. Mm. with psychotherapy. They, a lot of the people who use ketamine just use it as an antidepressant, you know, give them a blast, da-da-da. They're away, yeah. But uh, with ketamine, you get some very interesting experiences. One of them is just a kind of nice, blissful mm. experience. So one experience is a blissful one. Um, unfortunately, that only lasts for a few hours, if that, but then you feel good for another two or three days. Then you need a top-up. Mm-hmm. So you really need a minimum of two top-ups of ketamine a week for about six weeks okay. to get a good long-term effect. Okay. And then after the six weeks, you, you can go without it? Many people after the six weeks are fine. Wow. Mm. So it is doing something neurologically to rewire Oh, yeah, yeah, it's doing something big time neurologically. So it's not just masking, it's no, not no, just no, kind no, of no, 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 it's not masking, it's actually remodelling stuff. Wow, okay. So there's that. And then, uh, okay, so where were we? The Alzheimer's is uh, creeping in. (laughs) Um, Yes, that's right. Different experiences with ketamine. Mm. There's another experience that you get, which is far more challenging. Yes, terrifying. And that's the near-death experience. And in that one, you're dying and you fall into... The K-hole. A total, yeah, K-hole. That's the one. You're trapped inside your body. And that's it. Oh, it's worse than that. There's no longer any body to be trapped inside. But at some point, conscious awareness re-emerges at the other end of the tunnel. Mm -hmm. And things continue to improve. And so even when the people that I work with get a near-death experience, it's still positive in the longer term. Okay. Okay. What do you think's going on there neurologically? Um, well, what's going on is that all the prefrontal cortex has been cut off. So oh. they've probably had... Their dose of ketamine has probably been just a little bit too high. Mm-hmm. Do you think there's a benefit to experiencing the absence of a prefrontal cortex, i.e. an absence of a self and a sense of being at any point? Oh, oh. You've got me onto another long story. <laughs> About 30 years ago, when I was in Sydney, I used to help organise the Stan Groff workshops. Ah, holotropic breathing. Yes. Yeah. And Stan, uh, yeah, I was a great fan of Stan's, and so we did the holotropic breathing. And on this particular occasion, one of his colleagues, a Greek guy called Thanos Kafkalides, had come over to help out. And Thanos was another rebirther, but he used to work with drugs and rebirthing. 
So, you know, he used to see all the society ladies in Greece and Turkey <laughs> give them LSD and they'd have rebirthing experiences. And then LSD was outlawed. Mm. So he then went on to ketamine. Okay. And when he met me, he said, Leon, you should start using ketamine with your patients. Would you like me to teach you how? <laughs> Let me and show you the how. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so Thanos said, well, come with me. I'm going to be in Australia for the next eight weeks. Come with me every week and we'll go to the psychology lab at Sydney Uni. Bring some ketamine with you and I will give you an injection each week. So what I didn't know was that Thanos was using near-anaesthetic doses. And so when I got my first hit, as I was drifting off into blackness, I thought, you fool, Leon. <laughs> That's it. You've, it's over. You've set yourself up for death, <laughs> and now you're going to die of an overdose, and that'll be it. And so I went into black hole, and then what re-emerged wasn't my consciousness, it was just consciousness, kind of awareness. And bit by bit by bit by bit, stuff kept coming. And of course I had some weird, weird experiences of being a, uh, oh, a crypto being on a sort of crypto spaceship with a whole bunch of other crypto beings that had been sent from the centre of our galaxy to this planet. And our job was to help the human race. Wow. Every one of those eight experiences was like that. I had the wow. massive death experience every bloody time. And so that, that was like being lined up against a wall and shot. Bomb. Yeah, I Off bet. you go. da da See ya. However, you know, it helped deal with my fear of death. <laughs> yeah. And later on, when I did intensive meditation, you know, we're talking month-long stuff with uh, very good teachers, what I discovered was that some of the experiences you get in ketamine are very, very similar wow. to the experiences that you get in extremely deep meditation. Wow. Like, you know, awareness fragments, for instance, like you're doing the walking meditation, you notice that when you're putting your foot down, instead of it being a smooth movement, it's actually zap, 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 wow, like zapping away like frames at, wow. you know, a hundred a I've experienced second. that with salvia. Yeah, 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 yeah. That, that would be a good example. Okay. However, as you stay with the experience, you begin to be aware it's not your bloody foot. Right. It's your whole being that's actually zap, 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 zapping. Oh, my God. And, of course, you know, that loss of self, where there's just awareness, but there's no longer an ego right. there. That's another big meditation experience. Yeah, anyway. and, so, and so, I mean, so they do seem to kind of go across the same lines, um, that ancient teaching and meditation recommends that you try and experience that state periodically. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. All yeah, of yeah. Terence McKenna yeah. and all of that. Ram Dass, all, all of that. them have always All of that. And they're spot on. There's just one problem. Hmm. You have to have an ego right. before you can lose it, see. If you've been developmentally damaged, meditation will help, but no amount of meditation will help with your default mode network. Wow, okay. Now, what we found is with the damaged people, the default mode network is fucked. It's quiet. Can you see that on an fMRI? Also, yeah, well, yeah. you can see it on fMRI, you can see it on QEEG. Okay. Here's the punchline. When you do the fMRIs and QEEGs on extremely advanced meditators, you know, the Dalai Lamas of this world, yeah. guess what you find? Their default mode network is switched down as well. Oh, wow. Yes. So it's a full so circle. So in the long run, it's good to have that, but you have to have one. To start with. Okay. You know, Wow, that's interesting. So it's like, yeah, like building a house. You can't build a house without the foundation first. You can have a yep, roof. Yep. yep, yep, exactly. That looks that's, like a house, but it's not a house. That is how it is. Huh. That's how oh, it is. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. So, well, look, it's fascinating stuff. It really is, man. I think one of the things that I was most impressed about 
by you when I first found you was that exact thing, that you have a crossover in active clinical hip, um, psychotherapy, obviously, lots of research, and then also this interest in kind of the spiritual aspect yeah, of connectivity. Yeah, because I think being able to connect all three of those things um, is so important because we tend to get locked into our own individual channels. And I think a lot of people spiritually get written off because it's a bunch of mumbo jumbo. Well, yeah, yeah, And yeah. then research could be eliminating an entire there aspect. There are connections. Yeah. 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 But you need to, you need to know something about uh, developmental neuropsychology. You need to know something about uh, normal and abnormal brain functioning. Functional yeah. networks. Uh, and what's anyway. the name of your book called? Yes, it's time for us to go. We've been talking right. for over an hour, but thank you so, so much for having the me. The name of the book. Yes. It's called Nurturing the Nurturers, Saving the Planet. The Wadi Kanyalpai Dreaming, <laughs> a book for men. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course, most men won't bloody read it. But I'm kind of hoping that the women who will will then pass it on to their guys. Cool. Yeah. Awesome, man. So there we are. And yep. Yeah, and so we're waiting to hear back from publishers as soon we as we are know. Waiting to hear back from publishers. Yes. When you get it out, um, let me know, and we'll make I sure will that we let tell you know. everyone about it. And I want to get a copy yeah. of that book. Yeah. yeah. And, and if it doesn't get accepted, I guess I'll have to think about self-publishing or something. Yeah. Uh, get it out there either way. You spent that much time. Whatever. Before you die, man. All right. Before you Before disperse my die. Yes. off into nothingness. Yes. <laughs> Before I cough it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Ray. Thank you, Laura. Hello again. That was Professor Leon Pachowski. If you would like to see more of what he does, you can go to uh, check out his clinic. It is www.pinagerclinic.com. It's P-I-N-N-I-G-E-R clinic.com. You can also check out his blog. Isn't that cute? A 76-year-old man has a blog, and he writes about uh, developmental neuroscience and what's going on, and that is called Wati Kanyolpai, which is the thing he was talking about during the podcast. It's W-A-T-I-K-A-N-Y-I-L-P-A-I dot com. Thank you for listening to the podcast, as always. Thank you so much for uh, participating in all my dumb shit. And uh, thanks for listening all the way to the end. Talk to you again next week.